Welcome back to the Dynasty Crossroads. My name is Peter Howard at PA Howdy on Twitter. This is a member of the DLF family of podcasts. This episode marks a mini restart of the Dynasty Crossroads. Since Jake left, I've basically been floundering and trying to find a format that worked on a, converse, on a podcast that was meant to be a conversation between two people with different processes, trying to find the best way to merge them and move forward to be more successful in Dynasty. Since then, I've done a lot of sh- solo shows for a period, um, and most recently we moved into an era where I interview people, trying to beg, steal, and borrow different ideas about how to play Dynasty, ones that we can replicate or at least break down into some usable format that we can make our own decisions without having to ask them personally what they would do in order to try and get better at Dynasty. But recently I went back and listened to a podcast I go back and listened to quite a lot actually called Fantasy Football in Theory. It's one of the better podcasts I remember coming out because it's very different than anything else in the fantasy space. Most of the ideas in it are still evergreen, still worth um, going back and listening to, despite the fact that at one point they talk about how they mostly don't play in PPR leagues and some such. Um, there are only eight episodes ever made between 2016 and 2020 by Adam Hardstep. Now, the time involvement in writing them was immense, so I can understand why it was never regular and it broke down into interviews as well at a certain point, because it's just less effort to have a conversation and bring ideas out of each other than it is to sit down and write what is essentially a a fairly significantly sized essay for a podcast for free especially and but I really love the Malcolm Gladwell type feel of it like I say it was different and is still different than anything else in the fantasy space and while I can never reproduce that I do want to turn the crossroads into a place we can kind of include that. So while we'll still be doing interviews every other week, my alternate week podcast is going to try to be more scripted. And I don't like scripts in general, but I think it's worth investing the time to try and write something more succinctly and investigate or bring out some of the ideas we find about in our interviews in a more different, fun way where we just think about fantasy football in general, or in theory, perhaps, um, on a broad scale. Um, I'm really interested. I'm really excited to try and do something different with the alternate week podcast schedule that we've got going. Let me know what you think. This will be the first episode where I've sat down and written. uh, That that was a bad error. um, And rewritten and tried to build out a sort of script about one specific idea. It's meant to be fun. It's meant to be entertaining. But also just meant to roll around in the fun of trying to think about playing in Dynasty without being giving specific advice. Uh, I don't know. Let me know what you think. I'll, I'll do the thing. You'll listen to it. And, and then hopefully you'll have a better idea. And really do check out that podcast. Again, it's only eight episodes. They're all really fun. Um, especially the first few where he was really going for that uh, that vibe in the first few. Yeah. Let me know what you think, and next week it will be back to me doing an interview, and then the week after that I'll try and do another thing like this. It does take remarkably more time, but why not? Let's try something new, see if that works. Um, let me know what you think. Let's get to it. Do you have the time to listen to me grind? Take down the film watchers and learn once. Okay, this is take two because it turns out the pause button doesn't do nearly as good a job as you'd think as at making uh, everything sound like it was recorded at the same time. It's constant volume changes. So we're just going to try and do this as a one read. Uh, wish me luck, I guess. 
I have a memory like a well-worn sieve that wasn't exactly top of the line in its heyday. I have a particularly bad time keeping track of times, dates, and names, which was a real advantage as a history student in college, by the way. Luckily, I found that so long as you know the tune, the words are just a detail. So if I can get an understanding of the subject, I find I'm pretty quick to pick up whatever meter or rhyme I've forgotten along the way. Anyway, that'll have to do as an introduction to this topic for this week. Being contrarian or when not to be, it's something like that. And my poor memory, I think, is relevant. I don't know exactly where it comes from. Some coach on some long-forgotten team in my poor memory probably told me that having a bad memory is a good thing to move forward. Or maybe it was a movie? I don't know. But I think it's relevant to the topic. But I was poking around for some actual quotes that I could put names on. I have a few places I keep notes about interesting thoughts from other people, not my own, or ideas. Um, and I was leafing through them, and one that first jumped out to me was a quote from Dan Carlin, a self-described amateur historian and podcaster, and the podcast is called Hardcore History. He said, There are all sorts of ways to rationalize things you don't want to learn. Dan Carlin, and I, I just think that's a great quote. Um, a useful quote to start talking about confirmation bias, the necessity of challenging your priors, or when a conviction is a belief based on nothing but air and habit. Or the Combine, for example. But that didn't seem quite right, so I ducked into some Scott Fitzgerald. Not to name drop, but I have access to a lot of famous books. The famous... This is his quote. And it's about World War One, by the way, so... Warning, I guess? This Western Front business couldn't have been done again. Not for a long time. This took religion and years of plenty and tremendous sureties and the exact relation that existed between the classes. You had to have a whole-souled sentimentality, equipment going back further than you could remember. You had to remember Christmas and postcards and the crown prince and his fiancée, and little cafes and weddings in the town centre, and going to the derby and your grandfather's whiskers. Scott Fitzgerald. This is a quote to me about the passing of time and the need for certain cultures to produce certain outcomes or outputs or results, regarding the madness specifically of World War I. But instead... To start this subject, although we might circle back to those two, I settled on a bastardized version of something I remember our guest last week said on Twitter this week. The nihilism of fantasy Twitter abides. Zachary, the Dynasty Dummies. This isn't exactly what he said, of course. When it comes to Twitter, I find it good common practice to misrepresent and summarize with your own perspective what anyone else is trying to say. That's just the format. But I think it's good to get across the point without having to go too deeply into the thread itself. Also, it hat tips the dude. And while I'm not actually the biggest movie fan, I'm a big fan of hat tips. The point being, of course, that the better the market gets in ADP and value, the more it will lean towards the inescapability of the unpredictiveness of the nature of the NFL. Most recently, the subject came up which brings us our quote in question, about the recent tendency for fantasy Twitter to see draft capital as the only variable that matters when it comes to rookie prospects. Now, this is always best represented, at least in my book, when you want to keep your finger on the pulse of NFL memes. You go to Cooper Adams at CoopsFB, currently doing some work for fantasy pros, recently, and not so long ago working for DLF. He posts pictures of tape versus analytics fighting on the ground like two children while a third party called 
draft capital and vibes watch um, excitedly for the love of the game and the chaos of none of it actually mattering. Someone in my Discord mentioned something similar, hoping I had some content that would help dissuade the idea that only draft capital matters. Unfortunately, I'm not sure I do, or that I could, or should, but maybe. The value of draft capital can't be overstated in rookie evaluation, to be clear. Draft capital and vibes indeed. After spending years trying to pummel the NFL draft data into submission to find edges against the market or against the NFL itself, this is a horrible yet ultimately well-evidenced idea. Draft capital probably is the thing. As Adam Hartstead once fam- famously, no, once firmly proclaimed, only to then later just as firmly state that he's equally as convinced that he could be wrong, because that's Adam. No one beats the NFL draft. No one. Indeed, the more I investigate the NFL, the further I get away from the idea that production or anything is as relevant or as relevant as draft capital, or that anything matters, or that talent actually exists. Models consistently weight any variable that includes draft capital more heavily than anything else you can throw at it, often greater than a two-to-one advantage. Post-draft models often double pre-draft models R-squared testing, and even I, pre-draft at least, have to kneel to the potential of the insight that comes from the combine purely based on how likely the NFL is to draft a player. The disease, however, nihilism, goes further. Narrative and vibes, maybe. Points per game tests as the best correlative metric from one year to the next, except when it doesn't. And most debates about how volume changes degrade into an argument about one type of volume being better than another type of volume, and when splits matter. They don't, by the way. Splits never matter. Perhaps the best of the nerds, at least the best communicator among them, J.J. Zacharyson ultimately says that ultimately all of that volume matters, which for my money kind of means none of it matters, and we're back to the start. Fun arguments aside, but don't tell anyone I'm not just in it for the arguments. And just to be clear, I'll still take drafted rate from a team or a conference over anything from the combine as a variable. But anyway. Despite all this, today I'd like to argue that there's little value in not believing that the most unlikely process in Dynasty can work. I want to try and persuade you that fruitless as it may be, beating the NFL draft is the only logical way to try and play Dynasty in rookie drafts. This is a subject we've talked about before, but today we're scripted, so that's fine. I'd be interested to know if you agree, because maybe you shouldn't. But what madness compels me? Last week, we spoke to Zach Reed from the Dynasty Dummies about the changing ebb and flow of NFL trends and types of players we can expect to be productive. No, it doesn't change who they are. This is something Zach said to me in response to my question, does it change who you like in this year's draft? Or he said something like that. I just downloaded, I don't listen, obviously. I've long suspected that there was value in considering that the NFL, despite all its power, is restricted in the available talent. Doesn't matter if you want a small fast guy to work inside if the best one in the draft is below average. It doesn't matter if you want a big guy with a high A dot to take advantage of mismatches if the big fast guy in the NFL draft can't do it. But also, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Tyler Johnson failed, not because of lower draft capital, but because the NFL doesn't need a big guy with a high A dot in this era. And without draft capital, there's a little hope he works his way into an offense based on what he does, especially considering his depth chart. 
since 2016, out of 41 wide receivers to have two top 36 seasons in PPR scoring, have only five have averaged an A dot over 10 and a slot rate over 50 in college. Average. All but one of those players on that list are absolute studs, however. Justin Jefferson, Cooper Cup, A.J. Brown, Jalen Waddle, Amon Ross St. Brown, and Jared Judy. And you also have Van Jefferson, who's the one. In the meantime, 34 players with an ADOT over 10 have reached the same mark in NFL production in terms of PPR scoring seasons and had a slot rate below 50%. And this includes Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, Devontae Smith, Jamar Chase, C.D. Lamb, and T. Higgins. In other words, the high ADOT low slot has hit more often, but the high slot low ADOT has consistently had higher value, at least in terms of the ceiling of fantasy success. Then again, maybe it's proportional to the talent that's being drafted. Actually, not so much. Since 2016, 65% of wide receivers drafted into the NFL have averaged lower slot rates and higher ADOTs, despite hitting at a lower rate than low ADOT low slot rates, or even higher ADOTs and low slot rates. The NFL is taking more of the players who hit at a lower rate in either case in search of their alpha. The NFL is essentially tape Twitter, or the bad parts of it anyway, not, not Zach Reed. Is this because the value of those types of players to the teams are greater in this era? Perhaps. Rich Rebar has long held and argued and owned me on Twitter for some targets being more replaceable than others. But I'd also argue that this could be a bias in itself, since the majority of the smaller group hit much higher ceilings, suggesting merely good players could also exist in that role. They're just not wanted? Are NFL teams really hunting things that are that dissimilar to fantasy players? Is good enough not good enough in certain roles in an NFL offense because they are looking to fill different roles? Or maybe the NFL only finding good players, players that are good enough... Um, or maybe the NFL is only finding good enough players in certain roles. The interplay here is enough to be sophistry at a certain point if I keep going, but it interests me a lot. But how useful is this, though? I tend towards asking the last question first and starting a conversation on the premise that the facts are wrong. Why? Because at some point a math teacher told me one way of investigating a problem is to assume it's wrong and try to prove that. There's probably others, but they didn't strike me as interesting at the time. I like to disagree. But there is a conflict at the core of fantasy analysis, or fantasy play. Are Twitter warriors in any way likely to out-evaluate the process, the millions of dollars spent, or the years of experience in the game by scouts driving from one unknown college town to another to watch one local star in the next? Well, let's break that down for a second. Because I think movies have exaggerated that. Maybe? I don't know. I'm not actually a scout, but still. So let's start with the fact that Travis May, who we've also had on the podcast recently, has often pointed out that the relatively small number of high schools account for the vast majority of players who enter the college system. Any cursory study of the NFL draft will tell you that the vast majority of players who enter the NFL come from the same conferences. For an example, since 2016, almost half the players drafted into the NFL have actually come from two conferences, at least in terms of fantasy positions. 
the Big Ten, and the SEC. 9% came from the ACC, and by the time you add the Pac-12, all but 6% of fantasy position players are accounted for. The pool of players we're looking at really isn't as remote as the image of a scout in his car from one town to the next suggests. We know mostly who to look at, and combining that with a plethora of information that's available, especially around the Combine and the Senior Bowl, there are relatively few surprises. Interviews aside, the only thing we don't really have is the ability to make decisions or know the intent of those decisions made. But we also know the NFL is clearly selecting pedigree rather than a profile from a highly siphoned group already. I think the idea the NFL isn't interested in your fantasy team, quote-unquote, is doing way too much work to try and cover up the missteps and poor judgments that are common in the NFL draft as well. And to be fair, should be expected in trying to predict the future of a player's future potential. Are the the NFL really valuing things that we don't? Can we out-profile the NFL, or, or rather, are we even trying? Really? Yes. (laughs) It's an easy line to point out that we're not looking for the same thing as the NFL. And it's true. I've said it myself. It sidesteps a number of awkward conversations that really just don't need to be had or of no value. The NFL finds lower, and there is some truth to it, the NFL finds lower value in lower ADOT targets or slot targets uh, are easier to replace. While the differences where the difference makers in the slot, as Zach explained last week, have become a focus more recently for NFL offenses. But ultimately, I don't buy it. The idea we aren't looking for the same thing seems ridiculous to me. While it does come into play for things like identifying rounds where the NFL is less likely to take players they expect to develop into regular roles, ultimately we are chasing yards and touchdowns. And so are the NFL. I don't think there's a way around this. You either are expecting to get lucky or you're expecting to beat the NFL draft. And I don't think that's a bad idea either. And an efficient, it's an efficient system, as systems go in a small sample sport, but it's also a bunch of individual decisions made by individuals who are all prone to mistakes, common mistakes as well. Draft round, while efficient in the macro, is a singular decision in the micro. Tutu Atwell had second round draft capital because of the result of one GM's decision and his team. Then again, Tyler Johnson falling into the fifth round is a multitude of decisions in each round by every GM. But the same is true for Donald Mooney, Stefan Diggs, Hunter Renfro, and Tyree Kill from that same round. The relative lack of value of Hunter Renfro's slot targets does not explain the large majority of NFL draft discrepancies, nor the low ADOT value of Jacoby Myers, or the upside of other undrafted free agent hits like Adam Thielen or Austin Eckler if we sidestep to a different position for a second. The NFL does get things wrong, and we are able to see it coming. Sometimes. Mistakes happen, and many of them have something in common. We can and should target that. Take our lumps when it fails, and hope to strike the unlikely. Why? Let me explain my idea with a hypothetical. Would you rather have a rookie draft where every pick in the first round produces one top 12 season? Or a rookie draft where only one player produces a top 12 season? I've always leaned towards the latter. While a rising tide may not lift, may or may not lift all boats, that is a singularly unimportant outcome in a game where the goal is to be higher than every other boat. Or something like that. I'm not hoping for a good draft, nearly as often as I'm hoping everyone else has a bad one. 
In 2020, I wrote an article for DLF highlighting that who had been outliers to NFL draft capital and production trends, pointing out that they had several things in common. Namely, outside of a few, most were extremely successful in college, had an undervalued role in the NFL, or are successful in a lesser-known, lesser-drafted conference. I'll put the link in the description. Diggs, T.Y. Hilton, Adam Thielen, Doug Baldwin, Kenny Galladay at the time were all on that list. Now, we could easily add Donald Mooney, Jacoby Myers, Amon Ross St. Brown to that list today. There was still a remaining group, however, due diligence, of positional converts like Julian Edelman and Wes Welker, and others who had been underproductive or barely played in college because of off-field issues. Terry McClellan, underproduced, Tyreek Hill and Brandon Marshall both missed some time, just to name a few to point out that the, there is evidence of development in the NFL that aren't shown in production trends. But they seem to be the exception, not the rule, to what we would seek in terms of beating the NFL draft. The word outlier has been overused in fantasy content so thoroughly it has not so much lost all meaning as developed a new one. In that player everyone else is stupid for not liking, but we know better. Josh Allen is a shield for a quarterback of any description, while he, and while he may be deployed reasonably to protect a promising prospect, the reasoning could just as easily be employed for any prospect. Yes, we are looking for an outlier in a sense, but having an idea of what ones could or have in the past shared common traits or production factors is important. The only way to look for anything is to search for things we can recognize with historical examples, which is a conflict we must deal with, analyst or not. There are repeatedly been to only there have repeatedly been two significant mistakes the NFL has repeatedly made that we control for value. The NFL overvalues the outside at the wide receiver position, and the NFL overvalues pedigree. Relative to fantasy, at least, while the league seems to have leaned, or learned, into the inside value of players in the slot, as Zach explained last week, it's still disproportionately drafting players with lower slot rates and higher ADOTs, despite those groups not having higher hit rates, and not producing more yards and touchdowns relative to the level of investment they're putting out. The reason I share those topics so much is that they are perhaps the only ways we can explore an edge whatever your process is to finding that the players are good or bad, to find the ones that are the exception to the draft, and that's what pays. I think this is increasingly relevant. As Adam Harstead said, no one beats the NFL draft. We shouldn't expect to, in the macro. We should expect the community at large to in recon increasingly recognize this, but this is exactly why some years we find a better value than others. While trying to beat the NFL draft is a fool's errand, the changing nature of the NFL insists that at some point, the fool's bet pays off, and it's disproportionately successful in a game like fantasy football. We shouldn't make every fool's bet, to be clear, but, adjusting, but adjusted for by a smarter market, it can be a useful tool with solid process. While well, the best way to play Dynasty is to understand that we should set reasonable expectations based on what has happened and put ourselves more often in higher success categories, that doesn't always mean hit rates. There are still mistakes and tendencies that we can take advantage of the opposite way, especially around the NFL draft. While it is possible to always find ways not to 
learn what you don't want to learn. And the culture of the period is ultimately necessary for the output of a generation. I think there is always value in a winner-takes-all sport in being willing to play the fool and being optimistic instead of nihilistic sometimes, now and again, because we get to beat the NFL draft. And maybe it's worth skipping the tides that rise all boats and on occasion being willing to go underwater. Maybe it's worth sometimes connecting unconnected quotes from historians to something as silly as fantasy football. Either way, I think the 2023 draft is that type of class. We should actually expect less draft capital because of the nature of the players who are good in this class. And perhaps a slower development arc because where the talent is and where the NFL's interest is in where talent comes from. The NFL's relative lack of interest in good players versus players, they want to be good. But those are just my thoughts. Thanks for checking out The Crossroads. Let me know what you think, especially of the more scripted nature of it, and or subjects that you might like me to include in these episodes. Really appreciate it, and I'll see you next week. Yeah! Chicken or crow, chicken or crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfold, so... Jake on the table and Nate on the place, no. Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical. Picking my nose, don't really know if I like that. Picking their brains, got different lanes, but I like that. Picking these guys, all of these times, all of these nice stats. Picking apart, the film is an art, always a fight back and forth. There is no order, they disorder more and more because the players ain't no older. They some hoarders or some mortars, dropping bombs without no borders. They got that, I, I like mortar. Peak grinding numbers like molars, I don't know anymore. I am at a crossroads. Chicken or crow, chicken or crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfold, so. Jake on the table and Nate on the place, no. Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical. Chicken or crow, chicken or crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfold, so. Jake on the table and Nate on the place, no. Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical.